All opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinion of BioVerge, Inc. or its affiliates. The participants' opinions are based upon information they consider reliable, but neither BioVerge or its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied on as such. Nothing contained in and accompanying this podcast shall be construed as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to purchase any security by BioVerge, its portfolio companies, or any third party. Past performance is not indicative of future results. You're listening to the BioVerge podcast with Neil Litton. Yeah, I'm excited to see Greg Simons joining us today. For for people not familiar with Greg, who is he? Most people know Greg as the president of Biden's Cancer Initiative at the Biden Foundation. Before that, Greg was the executive director of the White House Cancer Moonshot Task Force created by uh, President Barack Obama. Yeah, the first time I came across Greg was during the time as CEO of Faster Cures. Yes, that's right. Um, so Greg was was part of that's part of the Milken Institute uh, and Faster Cures is their effort to change the process of discovery and development of new therapies uh, and really to give patients a voice. Uh, and so their whole mission was really to democratize access and make sure that patients have a voice in not only their care, but in the drug development and discovery efforts within uh, the pharma industry. There's also a tie now here with BioVerge's Greg's formerly an advisor. Following the JOBS Act, Greg launched Polywog. What was Polywog and how did that help set the stage for, for BioVerge? Yeah, that's right, Danny. So Polywog was, I'd say, an early adopter in, in the sort of investment marketplace movement. They were focused exclusively on, on healthcare, not surprising given Greg's background. So they, they were one of the original, I hate to call it equity crowdfunding platforms um, because there are some nuances there. So I want to be very careful in our terminology. So Polywog at the time was limited to only accredited investors. Uh, and so they, they launched in 2013. Uh, they came about after the passage of the American Jobs Act. Uh, however, the SEC had not finalized uh, rules under Title III of the Jobs Act, which uh, were really targeting non-accredited investors. So what Polywog was focused on was allowing for the general solicitation to accredited investors to allow only accredited investors to uh, to invest through the Polyog marketplace. At that time, the, the um, rules surrounding non-accredited investors had not taken uh, effect. So, you know, I was incredibly excited when Polywog launched. Uh, they they launched a great fanfare at JP Morgan at JP Morgan's healthcare conference, uh, probably in 2013 or 2014. So I, I'm really curious to hear Greg's perspective about his lessons learned, what happened. You know, to my knowledge, Polywog never really got off the ground. Uh, and so they really were never able to realize their vision. My sense is they were maybe a little too early, but would certainly certainly value Greg's perspective. Well, if you're ready to go, let's let's go, Greg. Yep, let's do it. Uh, hi, Greg. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you, Neil. It's great to be here. 
So, Greg, you've worked in government, uh, the nonprofit and private sector. You've been involved in healthcare from many different aspects, from policy to finance. As I look over the things you've done uh, across your career, I see a common theme, and really that's around both the urgency that patients feel and the need to harness technology to do things in a better way. Where do you see the biggest opportunities today to improve healthcare, and is it a matter of using technology to do that, or is it something else? Well, um, first, thank you for having me on. This is great. Um, you know, the the um, the problem we've always had in healthcare is that we don't know as much about human health as we do about how a car works. So when you take your car into the shop, in the old days, somebody got under the car and looked around. That's where we are today in medicine. Now you take your car into a shop and they put a computer on, uh, link onto it and they can diagnose everything wrong with your car in about 10 minutes. Uh, that's where we're headed, but we're certainly not there yet. There, there, there are two problems. Well, there's probably 10 problems, but uh, the first problem is we put way too much attention on technology in lieu of dealing with the patient. Uh, so while technology is critical for aggregating data, for analysts, uh, for AI, for all of those things that we're all familiar with these days, underlying all the technology is a human being. And that human being has myriad ways of reacting to their reality in healthy and unhealthy ways. So while we've made great strides in technology, as an example, we now have legitimately big data in health, which we have not had for decades. But that big data doesn't include, most of the time, the voice of the patient. So without the voice of the patient, you don't know if that 10,000 steps on their Fitbit was walking the dog or thinking about uh, committing suicide. Uh, and unless you actually talk to the patient, you don't know what's going on with them. So while we need to become much more technologically advanced, we also have to pause, take a breath, and introduce ourselves to the patient. That's eventually the key to human health, is understanding the patient with technology, but not just with technology. And Greg, I know you did a lot of work with, with Faster Cures. Could you talk a little bit about your role at Faster Cures, the role of the organization, and how that really serves to uh, amplify the patient voice within the healthcare system? So when I left the White House in 97, I started a consulting firm, and one of my clients was a biotech company, and the CEO got multiple myeloma. Um, so he calls me up one day and he says, I got a job for you. And I said, I've got a job. And he said, no, Mike Milken wants to start a new organization. And I told him that you're the guy. So I kind of laughed and I said, well, you know, okay. He said, well, would you like to talk to Mike Milken? And I said, well, of course, I'd be happy to talk with Mike Milken, but you know, I'm not looking for another job. Well, he had Mike Milken on hold. And so he clicks Mike through, and Mike invites me to a lunch in New York. I go up, and three hours later, I had given up my own business and agreed to start a nonprofit that we ended up calling Faster Cures. And the, the thing that really got to me in my discussion with Mike Milken was when he said, my only scarce resource is time. And I thought, here I'm talking to one of the richest guys in the world, and he's talking to me about how we can save time to save lives. And I, I really felt that I had to do that. So I left my business. I handed it to my partner, and I started Faster Cures with one other person helping me. And 
the the entire purpose, and, and this was in 2003, which seemed like the future at the time, but now I realize we were a long way from being the future. Um, in 2003, patients were not the center of much of anything. They weren't the center of medical records. They weren't the center of clinical trial design. They weren't the center of treatment. It was the old system in the 2000, in the in the 2000s, so to speak. So what we ended up doing was focusing after we had a three-day retreat with about 20 different disease groups, and I asked them one question: What is your biggest obstacle to progress? And after three days, everybody agreed it was the same thing, and that is the culture of research. So we decided to focus faster cures directly on the culture of research. The the uh, fact that it's been white men way too long, the fact that it was big institutions, the fact that it didn't involve the voice of the patient, the competition for grants, the competition for publication, none of those things were focused on the patient. So we built our entire program around how to become patient-centric in medical records, in clinical trials, in the way we reward people, not just for publication, but for impact. And we grew the organization over the six years I was there into a really robust patient-focused organization. And it's something I'm very, very proud of because it is true that we can do a lot better job than 17 years and $2 billion for every drug. Uh, In 2003, many of those changes were about changing the way you do things. You know, you can't do a three-minute egg in two minutes but you don't have to spend two weeks setting it up. And that's what our system was doing. It was, it was in between the things that take time, we were wasting a lot of time. And we spent enormous amount of effort bringing to light in the pharma industry and in the provider industry, how many things we do that simply were not necessary and that don't take patients into account. And that's why I'm really proud of what's gone on at Faster Cures. And they've become a major institution now helping patients. And Greg, I think in many ways, Faster Cures really set the stage for what has become almost industry standard now in terms of giving patients a voice, making sure that patients are at the center of a lot of uh, drug discovery efforts and that they are participants uh, and do have a shape in, in uh, do have a voice in shaping the future. Um, you know, one, one thing that, that's become clear from your comments is this theme around democratizing healthcare, right? giving patients more power in the discovery and the drug development process, uh, leveling the investment landscape. H- how do you see the potential for this type of power shift to, to reshape the healthcare landscape going forward? Well, <clears throat> I think that patients are in a position, and they have been, but they didn't have the tools. They're in a position to do what retail investors in Reddit just did with GameStop. Um, They have the ability now through social media, which was just starting up in 2003 with groups like Patients Like Me and Inspire. uh, They have the ability now to self-organize and to make their voices heard uh, about things they're not going to take for granted or, or stand for, so to speak. Um, the, the patient movement to demand access to their medical records has now reached its, um, its zenith. And I think it's uh, with new regulations coming out in the next few months, uh, people will be able to start actually using their right of access to their data. Um, 
Patients are designing clinical trials and selecting endpoints that are important to them. Uh, it was difficult to do this in a disaggregated, disintermediated society before social media let people join up with uh, people who have the same problems they do. Um, and I, I think that we'll, we'll see that it's not just that people will bring a Google search printout to their doctor when they have their next appointment. It's that people are actually now able to check numerous websites for information and make their own judgments and be active participants in their own health and their own care. That doesn't mean that we people should go out and self-diagnose on the Internet and then self-treat. But what it does mean is that people are empowered to really tell their story, to come back with alternatives to the traditional narrative they get in the medical community. Um, and we'll see through telemedicine that has been given a huge boost in COVID times, uh, through telemedicine and, uh, and through um, uh, the new access to data online, that uh, people will be able to be much more hands-on with their own health and challenge the traditional wisdom. And Greg, I, I know you, you speak from experience. I know along this journey, uh, something happened to you. you. You were diagnosed in 2014 with leukemia. Did that give you a different perspective on the work that you had done or, or continue to do uh, and, and how you sort of view uh, the patient perspective going forward? Well, unfortunately, it reinforced all of my awareness of the problems. Um, just one simple thing. I didn't find out that I have leukemia because my doctor called me I found out because I called my doctor. Um, I was getting off an airplane and was getting my bag down, and I had done a physical three days earlier, four days earlier. And it was Thursday, it was Thursday afternoon in Washington when I landed in San Francisco. And I thought, if I don't call my doctor before five o'clock, he doesn't work Fridays. I won't know if my PSA is a problem or my cholesterol is still a problem until Monday, and I really want to know. So I called my doctor from the airplane, and he said, I'm so glad you called. And he said, your PSA is fine, your cholesterol is fine, but by the way, you had leukemia. <laughs> now, take, take that apart for just a minute. I took a physical on a Monday. It takes 20 minutes to do a complete blood count assay to determine if you have too many white cells. So somebody knew on Monday when I did my physical that I had 160,000 white cells and you're supposed to have 10,000 or less. So they kept that information to themselves for four days. Now, there are some forms of leukemia where you will die within four days. So when I called my doctor and he said, you have leukemia, he didn't even tell me what kind I have. So when I went to get it checked, the doctor who was a friend of mine I actually was going to see <clears throat> was scared to death as I got to his office that I had acute leukemia, which would have meant I could have literally died within two or three days. Well, it turned out I had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And even though by the time I got to the second doctor, I had 180,000 white cells, my red cells were still good. And it, it, I was able to get great treatment a year later. I didn't get chemo right away. But here's the good news. The chemo that I did in 2015, they no longer even do for my leukemia because they don't have to. They have new pills 
that you can take that are monoclonal antibodies and immunotherapy drugs. So my experience at, at chemo was, you know, the patient is a commodity. You are herded in and you are herded out. When I got my very first treatment, it was July. I'm in shorts and a T-shirt. I sit down in the chair and a nurse comes in in a full hazmat suit. And I thought, what's going on here? Why am I in a sweatshirt? Why am I in a T-shirt and shorts? And you've got a hazmat suit on. Do you want to let me in on a secret? And it turned out, you know, nobody had ever said, this is how it's going to work. This is what we're going to do. This is how we do it. This is how you may feel. None of that. So, of course, the nurse does this 30 times a day. If she spills some chemo on herself, that's really bad. So she's dressed in a hazmat suit. But if they spill it on me, I'm getting it in my veins. So they figure, you know, it's not as big a deal. Well, that let me know right away that as a patient, I was on the wrong end of the elephant. And um, and now uh, I'm having to start a new drug in leukemia because I've been on a brutinib for six months, which has now stopped working. And my choices were take a pill, but you have to go to the hospital for a week, which I think right now is like the most dangerous place in the world. Or you can start infusions of a different drug that you get once a month for six months. But it's uh, an infusion where you go in, you get infused, and you go out. Um, And meanwhile, I had to suggest to my own doctor that maybe we should check the genetics of my white cells to see what mutated to make them unresponsive to a brutinib. Maybe we should actually look at my white cells under a slide to see what's unusual about these cells compared to previously. My doctor didn't bring that up. One of my other doctor advisor friends brought that up. And my doctor is perfectly willing to do it, but it just wasn't on his mind. And that, from a patient standpoint, most patients wouldn't know to ask. And that is my mission in life, is to have doctors do the things the patient should ask them to do, even if the patient doesn't know to ask. And that's one of the biggest lessons that I've gotten from my personal experience is that you should never be alone when you're dealing with doctors, number one. And number two, you should always ask, what is it we're not doing that you didn't talk to me about that I may have an opinion about? And then you get into some really interesting conversations. Greg, I I mean, that that whole experience, first of all, sounds uh, terrifying to to go through all that. And it it just really serves to illustrate the point that we really do need to be responsible for our own health care to a large degree. Uh, And I think you're exactly right. A lot of patients, a lot of people don't even know what questions they should be asking. Uh, And that that's part of part of the challenge. And I I think I think that's a nice segue into uh, into your next role uh, when you were the executive director of the White House Cancer Moonshot Task Force. For our listeners, uh, the Cancer Moonshot provided one point eight billion dollars to advance cancer research over uh, a period of seven years. The legislation created the FDA Oncology Center of Excellence and put the National Cancer Institute in care of dispensing the funding. How effective do you feel the moonshot has been and where do you see the biggest payoffs uh, coming from? Well, I think certainly while we were in the White House, um, uh, the moonshot was very effective in bringing people together to do things they haven't either thought of doing or had the time and budget to do. They didn't think about it. But we had 20 agencies around the table and we asked them to do two things. 
Number one, pick some partner in this organization that you see around the table that you've never collaborated with and find a way to collaborate. As an example, the NCI and NASA. NASA has radiation labs that turned out to be very helpful to test new radiation therapies uh, that were coming out of NCI. But the, the other question that was the big question was, how are you touching patients today in their journey from being healthy and avoiding cancer through doing the right things to being diagnosed correctly, detected early, treated successfully, and survive well? How are you touching the patients today, whether you're DOE, the VA, NCI, NIH, FDA? How are you doing it, and what can you do to double the impact of that touch? Not just through money, but through new approaches to doing what you're already doing that reach twice as many people or reach them twice as quickly. And that really, I think, set the moonshot on the proper course. And when we left the White House, the moonshot did not end. The only thing that ended was the moonshot office in the White House that I ran. The moonshot effort at all these agencies continued because it was career people, existing budget, and they were highly motivated to do it. And in fact, last week, Dr. Jill Biden called the NCI and had a 30-minute call with the moonshot team at NCI to thank them for the work they were doing over the last four years and to let them know that it wasn't in vain and that we would be back. Um, so the moonshot continues. Now, the other thing it did was not just, you know, government interaction. The other thing the moonshot did was it gave everybody in the country who cares about cancer something to do together. And that was, you know, people ask, how did you get people to get involved with the moonshot? And the answer was, I didn't have to do anything. We were inundated with companies, individuals, nonprofits, universities, cancer centers, all asking the same question. We want to be part of this. What do we have to do to be part of it? And the answer was very straightforward. You tell us what you're best at today and tell us how you're going to double it in real time now. Not a two-year plan to start later. But if you can show that you have something you can double now and you're going to put the people and the money and the effort into it, then you're part of the team. And we will lift up what you're doing. We will bring attention to it. We will connect you to collaborators. We will connect you to patient organizations. And as a result of that, we had over 80 collaborations that, that came together without us giving anybody money, without us giving anybody a you know, special meeting at the White House. It was just the fact that people wanted to do it and we would help them. And that became a movement, not just a government program. And to this day, I'm getting emails from people all over the country and in some cases the world talking and making sure I'm aware of what they've done with the moonshot effort since uh, the, the uh, Obama-Biden administration left town. So the moonshot was a ray of hope, so to speak, to mix my metaphors, um, to people with cancer and people fighting cancer, that they could come together and be together uh, in a positive way instead of being competitive in the negative sense or being on their own. And I think that's continuing today. 
Craig, you, you had mentioned this uh, during your own journey with, with cancer. There's obviously been a tremendous innovation. You can see how the moonshot has, has really helped to bring people together uh, and collaborate, as you said, instead of being competitive. Uh, but there still does exist a, a strange dichotomy between what we are now able to do and the type of care many people with cancer receive. Where do you think the, the disconnect lies? Oh, gosh. <clears throat> well, you know, racism isn't just about where you sit on the bus or where you can eat or where you can go to school. The zip code inequality in this country is horrendous. Um, years of not investing in minority communities, a century of not allowing minorities, especially African-Americans, or particularly African-Americans, to acquire wealth through owning property and through being able to pass wealth, wealth down. All of these inequalities show up in a distribution map of healthcare services. The, the, the areas that have been discriminated against and underinvested in, it's no surprise they have the highest death rates from preventable cancers. And it's, a, it's difficult to overturn two centuries of racism in any four-year period or in, even in any generation. But we do know that the biggest determinant of who survives cancer is who has insurance. So Obamacare was not just important because it covers pre-existing conditions. It was important because there were millions of people who would never go to the doctor and therefore never detect cancer early because they had no insurance. So when Obamacare extended insurance to over 30 million more people, you can anticipate that meant we would save hundreds of thousands, even millions of lives from cancer. But, you know, we're not, we don't test in African-American communities. One of the very first moonshot projects was a collaboration between the uh, Case Western Cancer Center and GW's public health school here in Washington, both of whom came to me separately and said that they wanted to do a study of lung cancer rates and, and improve lung cancer detection in disadvantaged communities in Washington and Cleveland that have high rates of minority community, high rates of smoking, and high rates of lung cancer. So I put them together, and they put a two-city program together to go into housing projects and other areas in these two cities where lung cancer was rampant and start a new program for early detection and treatment. That program turned into a 20-city program because it was so successful. That's the way we're going to do it. We're going to do it from the ground up. We're going to do it by going into these communities that have been disadvantaged for generations and start offering the services that everybody else takes for granted. And we have to do the same in our leadership. We have to have more minority and women leaders. The average age of the directors at NIH is 75, and they're mainly all white men. This is unacceptable in 2021. All of our government health agencies need a wake-up call that we have an entire diverse population that has not been taken care of, and we need to take care of it, and we need to start yesterday. Greg, so, so much of your efforts over your career have been focused on this idea of democratizing access, leveling the playing field to healthcare. 
Uh, b- before we go, I, I did want to ask you about Polywog, uh, which was a crowdfinancing marketplace focused on uh, specifically the healthcare vertical. Polywog was very much an early innovator in the space. It was enabled by uh, by the Jobs Act. What lessons can be taken from your experience at Polywog, and what do you see as the future for these types of platforms going forward? Well, sadly, the first lesson I learned was don't assume that just because a bipartisan majority of Congress passes a bill that the SEC will give a damn. (laughs) Um, The SEC, in my personal experience, treats small investors as the problem and big investors as the exception. Nobody went to jail after the mortgage fraud of 2008. But if a single individual investor makes a mistake, they're much more likely to end up in jail. Um, As an example, before the Jobs Act, it was illegal to mention a private offering in public to a group of people that you had not uh, determined were accredited investors, meaning they had either a $200,000 income or a million dollars of net worth outside of their house. And the, the original sin, most people had no idea that even under the First Amendment, the government could bar you from mentioning a private offering to non-accredited investors. And if you did, you went to jail. So why is this? This is The biggest lesson that I learned from Polygon is that wealth is not a marker for wisdom. The SEC has assumed since the 70s when private offerings started that wealth equals wisdom. And if you weren't wealthy, you weren't smart enough to invest in a private company. You could invest in a casino game. You could invest in lottery tickets until you lost your house. But the irony of the position is investors are more protected legally than any other group of people in terms of how you spend your money. So why is it we limit the rights of people to invest when we have all these protections and disclosures and and fiduciary obligations but we don't limit their ability to gamble in state-run lotteries, in state-owned casinos. This was enormously troubling to me. And at Polywog, what we were trying to do was to allow the people who donate to any disease of interest to them to be able to invest in those same diseases by investing in the private companies that were working to deal with them. It doesn't make sense that if you want to cure the oil crisis, you create economic incentives to invest in oil exploration. But if you want to cure Alzheimer's, you can invest in a nonprofit and hope that they have the wherewithal and the money and the talent to tackle Alzheimer's. We did not start the National Oil Nonprofit Exploratory Foundation in the 70s in the oil crisis. And yet we continue to think that Nonprofits, which play an enormously important role, can solve these diseases when we all know that at the end of the day, whatever the nonprofit has done has to be done by a private company in most cases with far more capital and far more access to talent than nonprofits have. So at Polywog, we were really trying to democratize the ability to invest because wealth is not a proxy for wisdom. And the SEC took forever to finally open the door to the average person being able to invest in what they care about, not just in the stock market in general, not just in oil and gold, but in diabetes, in cancer, in Alzheimer's, in Parkinson's, in lupus, whatever it is. And to do that, 
in a way that lets them be investors like any other investors, whether they're a millionaire or whether they just lost their dad to cancer and they want to invest in a company doing the work to, to save lives in the future. So I learned a lot. One is that the SEC has an incredible amount of power to stop the Congress from doing things. And two, that there was an enormous demand for people to be able to invest in healthcare. And I'm very happy that that is now a reality. Greg, there, there's a lot to dive into there, but I, I think one of the key points that you that you make is it really actually, if we look throughout history, there's a pattern that emerges over and over again, and that is capital drives change, right? So wherever money is injected, innovation often follows. So I think what what I'd like to reiterate to our listeners is that you know each individual investor holds a great amount of power, um, and so you have the ability to influence where your money is directed, which means where time and energy are spent. Um, and so your capital really can help drive innovation. And so as, as Greg, as, as you, you articulately mentioned, uh, you know, we should all have the ability to invest in areas that we care about uh, and to try to drive that change. So Greg, with that, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today uh, and, and appreciate your time. Neil, this has been a great honor to talk with you and uh, good luck in all your ventures. Thank you, Greg. Greg Simon is the former president of the Biden Cancer Initiative and former executive director of the White House Cancer Moonshot Task Force uh, and is now, I should say, a advisor to BioVerge. Greg, thanks so much. My pleasure. Well, Neil, that covered a lot of territory. What struck you the most? Yeah, we, we really did cover a lot of territory, Danny. I think what struck me the most was, number one, Greg's personal experience uh, with leukemia. I mean, you, you heard him talk about that, you know, he actually had to call his doctor for his diagnosis. Um, and the doctor's office, the hospital, whomever it may have been, was sitting on it for about four days, which is an eternity when you're dealing with leukemia. So that was, frankly, terrifying um, and, and just really uh, unsettling. Um, but it also reinforces the fact that you as a patient, you as an individual, really need to take your own health care into your own hands. You can't necessarily rely on, on doctors, right? They're here to help, but you really need to own your own outcomes to a large degree. And so I think Greg's story really reinforced that. The, the other thing that I think was really um, telling was this whole idea of democratizing and this is something near and dear to my heart, uh, really from my days at CIRM, right? And putting patients front and center during the entire drug discovery, drug development process. So at CIRM, we used to say that uh, the patients were our North Star, right? Our guiding light, every decision that we made was focused on the best outcome for patients. And, you know, at CIRM, we would invite patients to be part of our, our, our board, uh, be part of our advisory committees to get their voice and make sure their voice was heard. So as you heard Greg talk about, putting the patients front and center to make sure their voice is heard, I think is clearly the direction that healthcare is going uh, and one that is incredibly important to having great outcomes for, for patients. And whether we like it or not, we're all patients at some point in our life. So it's important that we all have a voice. BioVerge itself has evolved a bit from its original conception. What did you learn from Polywog's experience? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. You know, BioVerge has evolved and we continue to evolve. Uh, you know, we, we really started similar to Polywog where we were focused on only accredited investors uh, and trying to democratize access to allow more accredited investors to participate uh, in private offerings. And, and, that, and that's great. Only 
two to three percent of accredited investors have ever participated in a private offering. So there's a huge market out there. But the whole goal and the whole mission of BioVerge is to really democratize access. And we can only truly achieve our mission and our vision if we allow everyone and anyone to invest in in healthcare. And so that certainly includes uh, non-accredited investors who make up about 97% of the American population. And so as you heard Greg talk about this idea of not only being able to donate to causes within health that you care about, but actually make investments is really critical and I think will be able to really drive innovation forward uh, in in a much more accelerated pace than what we're doing now. He has such a, a unique perspective, such a, a 360-degree view of the world of healthcare. Where do you see him bringing the greatest value as an advisor to BioVerge? Well, so certainly from his experience at Polywog. I mean, I, I think his lessons learned during uh, his time as CEO will, will certainly help uh, BioVerge, uh, well, hopefully avoid some of the issues that, that plague Polywog. Uh, but certainly his role in, in, in policy, in government, in the private sector, uh, his role with the with the cancer moonshot and just his experience surrounding innovation and collaboration is is critical. If you look uh, at his role as the first president of Fast to Cures, a lot of what we're doing at BioVerge is working with nonprofit organizations, disease foundations, and collaborating with them to uh, to basically you know invest in things that their communities already care about. We just want to provide another avenue for people to invest in what they already care about. And so Greg has a lot of experience. Uh, dealing with those types of collaborations, dealing with this idea of democratizing and really bringing people together, which is really what we're trying to do at BioVerge. Well, until next time. Well, that was fun. Appreciate it, Danny. Thanks for listening. The BioVerge podcast is a product of BioVerge Inc., an investment platform that funds visionary entrepreneurs with the aim of transforming healthcare. BioVerge provides access and enables everyone to invest in highly vetted healthcare startups on the cutting edge of innovation. From family offices and registered investment advisors to accredited and non-accredited individuals. To learn more, go to BioVerge.com. This podcast is produced for BioVerge by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.